You're listening to Vaccine Curious. The coronavirus pandemic begs the question: What do we know about vaccines? This podcast investigates vaccines from an individual, a societal, and scientific perspective. Your host is Professor in Global Health from University of Southern Denmark, Christine Stebel Ben. Welcome to Vaccine Curious. Peter Abi, Professor in Global Health and Childhood Vaccines at University of Southern Denmark. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here at this podcast. Um, uh, we have invited you to talk about the discovery of non-specific effects of vaccines. You were the person who introduced me to non-specific effects of vaccines when I came to Guinea-Bissau in 1993. How did you discover that vaccines have non-specific effects? Thank you for the invitation. Um, <clears throat> As a background, I'm an anthropologist by training, so it hasn't been sort of a straight going into the medical field and making a discovery. Um, <clears throat> the whole thing started in Guinea-Bissau, which is the former Portuguese Guinea, which became independent in '74, and the country was very poor and it had a very high mortality. Around 50% of the children died before five years of age. So Sweden was the major donor for Guinea-Bissau at that time. So, we, <coughs> so Sweden decided, or the agencies in Sweden like CEDA and SARIC, they decided that they would do a study of <coughs> what was the causes of malnutrition. Everyone at that time knew that the reason that the children died in Africa were malnutrition. They knew that? They knew that. You know. It's in all the textbooks. It's all the programs. I have asked a hundred times, I've asked audiences, <coughs> why are children dying in low-income countries when diseases that, like measles, is relatively mild in the Western world? And the answer was invariably malnutrition. Had they studied that, or was that a sump- an assumption? In some way, but not really. Uh, it was so self-evident, and it was strongly sort of reinforced by the campaigns against hunger in Sudan and Eastern Africa in the ages. Uh, so it was a <clears throat> in the seventies and eighties. So there was there was the general feeling that this was the reason. So Sweden clearly started this project. Um, to find out why were the children in Mal- in Guinea-Bissau malnourished, and the ambition was that we should find out what what was missing in their food, how could we then train them, uh, train the peasant to cultivate other things. And um, so the reason to have an anthropologist on on this project about malnutrition was to find out what was the food ha- uh, habits and what was the food taboos, and. Um, Sweden was ambitious in the sense that they had a, <clears throat> a multidisciplinary team of, a, of a, two anthropologists and a physician and a nutritionist. And um, when the work started in '78, <clears throat> we quite rapidly became very surprised because the children were not malnourished. They, were, <clears throat> they had a very good breastfeeding until two years of age normally, which means that there were very few severely malnourished children. And when we made our first survey in December uh, 78, we only found two two children who were severely, out of 1,200 children, we only found two children who were severely malnourished. And they, <coughs> the reason was quite obvious, <coughs> sorry, the, the, the reason was obvious because their mother had died at, at delivery. So it was the grandmother trying to take care of them. So it, you didn't need a, a multidisciplinary team to decide why they were malnourished. Um, and um, so we were kind of sort of walking around in a very strange situation. We, we were there to find out why were the children mal- malnourished, but they weren't malnourished. Then what was the whole thing going on here? But we had to do the surveys in the different parts of, uh, of the country. And while we were sort of, ma- main part of the team were 
in the interior of Guinea-Bissau to uh, examine uh, the malnutrition situation in, in for different ethnic groups in different ecological areas. We there was a measles epidemic in the capital in the area which has uh, called Bandim, and which has become sort of the main area for the project. Um, and this measles epidemic clearly became. Uh, it was much bigger than uh, we had, whether anyone had thought about, and um, it was very severe. And um, we later found out that around 25% of the children who got measles died of the infection. And that again was sort of very strange. If the children were not very, very malnourished, why would 25% of the children die? Because you could re- at that time you could read in any textbook that the reason for high measles mortality in Africa were malnutrition, and um, it, I'm not going to tell that story uh, completely. But it, uh, we later found out that the real reason was not malnutrition; it was <clears throat> the crowding. The inter- uh, they had very big families, and then they had houses with multiple families living in the same house and on average there were 18 persons per house so some houses would have had 40 people uh, so they, that meant there was a lot of kids and what we found out was that <clears throat> those who die of measles is not the children who get catch the infection from the neighbor or the kindergarten or whatever it's the children who are infected at home who are sleeping in the same bed as the first case. So the most logical explanation here is that it's the intensity and the dose of infection which determines uh, who dies of infections. So if you put a lot of children together who have not been vaccinated, you can easily get high mortality and you can get high mortality everywhere. Uh, So So this was an unusually uh, crowded environment if you had not 18 persons per uh, um, per house. So it, it meant that you had on average four to five kids under five in every house. Um, so, <clears throat> But it, this took a long time to find out and to find out that you can, there are data, historical data, which you can show exactly the same thing. When mortality was high in Europe in the beginning of the 19th century, you can see, in act, we have shown that later with data from Blytham's Hospital, that it was also the kids who were infected at home who died of, of, of measles at that time. So the main reason that measles is now considered a mild disease in, in our part of the world is that there, there isn't that much crowding in the homes. Yeah, it, it it's that, it, but it's also that you have moved the kids out of the home. Um, sort of in the old days, 200 years ago, the normal way of infecting would be that the children met in school and then the disease spread in school. And then they took the older children of around six or seven years, they took the infection back to the family and then they infected their smaller siblings and it was those smaller siblings who would then die when mortality was also high. But when we started to have public childcare, uh, partly we made uh, cities where a lot more people in Minnesota in, 18, <coughs> in the 1800s, uh, there was a huge increase in the urbanization. So you got bigger population, and if you have a bigger population, then the infections occur much earlier, which means that you have only each child, if a family have several children, the the children will tend to be infected in different epidemics, in different years, whereas if you go to a rural area, um, where there may be 10 years between the uh, epidemics, then there will be many children who are susceptible uh, and therefore you would tend to have higher mortality from measles in the rural areas than you have in the urban areas. And that's not because uh, the, the children in the urban areas are more wealthy. They usually weren't because this was the poor families having a lot of kids under some bad crowding conditions. Um, so we eventually, well, this probably took 10 years, 
established in many different African countries and in historical data that it was the intensity of exposure. It was the fact that you were infected at home, which was uh, decided, you know, meant that you had a higher risk of dying of the infection. Um, and the nutritional status had no implication for that. It had no importance for that situation. Uh, that was very controversial at the time. And uh, eventually, um, the Swedish agency, which had employed us, they fired us because they were too uh, surprised by these things. And they didn't, the f physicians who were involved in this, they didn't like the results. But that's not really how the nonspecific effect, this is the background. You had to have sort of a number of contradictions you had to explain to sort of believe, um, you know, to be able to see things in a new way. And I think if if the physician has just said at that time, this is, um, <clears throat> this is interesting. I had probably gone back to anthropology and been a, a professor at the, at the Institute of Anthropology, but instead they, they fired us and they said, this is impossible. You can't have an anthropologist coming and telling the physician how things should be. The, the thing you have told them was that malnutrition wasn't the cause of yeah. the high mortality. Yeah. And that, in fact, did you also tell them at that time that you thought crowding was the real factor? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, those two things are sort of the same kind. Um, so uh, <coughs> the reason was that they... Um, we 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 said that it was a dose dose of infection which was probably the cause of high mortality, and we used the data we had. But it was also that <clears throat> the project had not been planned to study measles; it was to study the nutritional situation. So we have some data which was indicative, but we wanted to get back and examine all the kits in this study area where we knew who had died, but we didn't knew all the children who had, had, we didn't have the information on all the children who had actually had measles. Right? We had some, but we didn't have all the data. So I wanted to get back and actually interview all the mothers about whether they ha their children had had measles or not, and particularly about how they were infected. Um, <clears throat> and they were not willing to do that. Uh, they were being CEDA, uh, the yeah, Swedish agencies. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't CEDA. It was a parallel organization called SARIC, which was sort of the Swedish agency for research co cooperation with low-income countries. And um, they were not willing to, to, to fund that situation. So we were sort of they had planned that we should continue for a longer time to analyze all the data we had con collected in Guinea-Bissau, but then the contract was stopped in the summer of 81, and I went back to the university and had to find other ways of getting back and actually study what had happened. So it took, it took a long time to actually get all the data. It was first in 82. I actually could make all the interviews, and we started publishing the papers in, in 83. So sort of the academic side of it started from from 83. But what had also happened in that process was that since we've had this very severe epidemic, um, <clears throat> we thought that we should actually provide measles vaccination to the community. This is the, the late 70s. There, were, there was an official vaccination program by WSO which started in 74 after the eradication of smallpox. The team which had started smallpox eradication, they were also sort of proposing to have a general vaccination program and that started in 74. And there were recommendations for, for many of the vaccines, but a lot of the African countries did not use that program. So there there were no, no real vaccination program in Guinea-Bissau at the time. There was only smallpox vaccination. If you had to travel abroad, you had to have a smallpox vaccination. So <clears throat> none of the children had been measles vaccinated when we had the first epidemic in 79. So we thought that when we re-examined the community after one year, that we should provide measles vaccination to the kids. So what that then happened was that we, we vaccinated all children between six, six, six years and six months. 
So that age group we vaccinated all the children. And <clears throat> when at the time a lot of people thought that vaccination was was not really important because it was the malnutrition which was important. And was important in the sense that people believed that uh, if you were saved for one, if you were a malnourished child but was saved for one infection, you would just die from some other infections. A lot of famous people that time, that time have sort of put their name on that very simple Darwinistic theory that is the weak ones who die. Um, and, but that was the sort of the, that was the mental landscape at the time. And um, when it started to become clear for us, you know, this was in 8081, that it wasn't malnutrition. At that time, there were no facilities for analyzing the data in Guinea-Bissau, so we had to go back to Sweden. So we sat for one year in Sweden, linked up to a mainframe computer, um, <clears throat> and tried to get the statistics out of uh, what we have, uh, the data we had collected. And what occurred then when it became increasingly clear increasingly clear that it was not malnutrition then I started thinking if if that's true then you can actually imagine that the vaccination would have an important effect in terms of preventing measles and therefore so you're saying, just to, to get it clear, you're saying if, if it was believed that malnutrition killed the children, so if you vaccinated against measles, it wouldn't have any effect because the malnourished children would just catch the next infection coming around and die from that one. Yeah, you might but, just change the, the course of death, not the fact that they would die. But when you saw that malnutrition wasn't a major determinant for measles, then suddenly for measles mortality and, and seeing this high, like one out of every four child of Uh, who got measles dying from measles, then really it looked like a good idea to give measles vaccine. That changed kind of the the whole narrative about the measles vaccine in that sense that it wouldn't it it might very well prevent very healthy children from dying also. Yeah, but that was sort of I think initially we provided Vaccine, measles vaccination just as a service to the community. We had been working there and measles was a big problem, therefore we provided uh, measles vaccination. It was only a bit later we actually found out that there was no link at all. If something is really critical, it takes a long time to convince yourself that you are right, that you are on the right track. So we had the data, it didn't fit, they didn't, the children did not look mal- malnourished, But it it took two years before we as a group decided that there's no link between malnutrition and measles mortality. And it was only at that time when that became clear, the center said, what, ha- what does then happen when you provide measles vaccination in this population? And it happened that we, the team we had, Uh, worked with the Guineans we had worked with, they continued to collect data in Guinea-Bissau. So they had sent us sort of quarterly report with updates on what ha- <clears throat> what was happening in the population they have followed. So, so they ten- sent lists with all the kids in the different community that we were following. And since we had vaccinated in the the, the major uh, urban area, Bendim, we they received a report from them or which children had died since we be left. And I could then go back and I sat with the, all the papers from the sort of the vaccination campaign, the final vaccination campaign, and then saw the, the list of the children who who had died subsequently in, in the following month. And I can still sort of vividly remember the feeling, this is unbelievable. Uh, because every t- time there was a children who died, I went back and see what had happened during, you know, please remember this is a time where everything was on papers and handwriting. It was not sort of a computer which you could go in and find the child. So you had to find the form, the paper form, where you had the information of the child. And every time a child has died, I went back and saw 
That child had not been present. It had been traveling at the time um, we had our campaign, so that child would not have uh, been vaccinated. We had vaccinated 85% of the children, but in, in Bandim there was always be a lot of children who were traveling because the, they had to go back to the rural areas to, to make ceremonies or they had to help their family with their har- harvest so that they could get rice for their own consumption. So there's always 15 to 20% who are away, and therefore there were 15 to 20% that we did not vac- could not vaccinate because we only vaccinated one day sort of in each, each district. And when I was sitting there with the papers, sort of child after child had died and none of them had been vaccinated, you get this very strange feeling, this is unbelievable. But it, you sort of, you did it again and it was, was repeated. And that was probably the f- first time where I really had the feeling, this is unbelievable, this is extraordinary, maybe this is very important. Um, and uh, but we didn't call it non-specific effect. It was just sort of a feeling. How can measles have this enormous? A measles vaccination have this enormous effect? And if you think about it, you know, mostly you think measles mortality is the number the children who die in the first month after. Measles. They die in the acute phase of measles. So all the statistics on measles is uh, sort of based on the children who die within the first month. So the first reaction to this observation was that. And just to make it completely clear, your observation was that measles vaccine, those who got measles vaccine, had a very low risk of dying compared with those who hadn't gotten measles vaccine. Yeah. It was more than. How how much lower was the mortality? It, it, I think it was a sevenfold difference in mortality, and uh, you rarely find that level of differences in uh, in mortality. So, but you know, how do you you you're always influenced by what you already knew and what the the thinking you have had previously. So the first idea to this was that maybe um, maybe the, the the children measles was not what we had thought measles was. So we thought that measles maybe induced immune suppression, and there was a long-term effect of the disease, which and. By vaccinating, you prevented both the acute, but you also prevented the delayed effect on measles. So for a long period, we worked on this idea that the reason we had this major effect on measles was that you prevented measles, uh, the, the secondary or long-term effect on measles infection. So measles vaccination reduced mortality sevenfold because it reduced both the acute death of acute measles and also long-term yeah. death following yeah. a measles yeah. infection. That thinking was probably influenced by the fact that this is the time when HIV was discovered, that you had a virus which induced long-term negative effect on on survival. Um, <clears throat> so we, for several years in the late ages, we tried to find do- document whether there was delayed um, mortality after measles infection. And we did those studies both in, in Guinea-Bissau and in Senegal, where I had some collaboration. And... Uh, Surprisingly, it turned out that it was the opposite. Uh, those children, and this may be a little bit complicated, but but those children who survived the acute phase of measles the first month, they did not have higher mortality after measles infection. In fact, they tended to have lower mortality after measles infections. And we found that several times in Guinea-Bissau, and we found it in <clears throat> in several data set in in Senegal. So I increasingly became convinced that there was actually measles could also have a beneficial effect. It can kill you clearly. It's measles a very dangerous. Yeah, measles infection. It's very dangerous. It can kill you, but maybe it also trains the immune system. And that was sort of 
the whole perception we have, the, the medical perception is that all diseases are dangerous and we should get rid of them. So it's sort of, it, it, it's a worldview where um, diseases are the enemy and therefore um, the big thing is if you can eradicate a disease, then you get totally rid of it. This is the major uh, victory in preventive medicine. And um, But here we've sort of, this suggests that you can actually have some benefit of the disease. So maybe it kills some children, but it saves some, some other children. So this was sort of gradually that became uh, a new way, way of approaching it. Vaccine curious. So measles infection could actually be beneficial if you survive the first month. But how about measles vaccination then? But the whole thing of, we had found that measles vaccination had this very strong effect, but it was still out, we still were, we we tried to provide measles vaccination to all the kids in Bissau itself, the whole, the capital of Guinea-Bissau. So we had several programs, and we did that together with the Danish group IMCC, which is sort of a medical international organization for collaboration between medical students. So to maintain the data collection in Guinea-Bissau, we could, I collaborated with IMCC. And so they had students there everywhere, and we tried to sort of get a program where we had vaccination in all the districts in, in Bissau um, in term to do something, but also to do some studies in that process. And one of the things we did was to uh, see if we could give measles earlier. Measles vaccine. Give measles vaccination earlier. The WSO policy is um, at that time was that you should vaccinate from nine months of age. And really, the, the, the measles vaccination policy is just based on the observation that you should you should vaccinate when only when the mother's antibodies, the maternal antibodies, we're all born with our mother's antibodies. And so it's only when the, the mother's antibodies against measles has disappeared that you should vaccinate against measles. Um, and that would normally be sort of between 12 months and 50, 15 months. So in the Western world and the rich countries, we have vaccinated between 12 and 15 months in different countries. But in, in low-income countries where there are more children, you cannot wait that long because then too many children get measles. So nine months has sort of been a, a compromise from WSO. But it's still based on the idea you should not vaccinate in the presence of maternal antibodies. So at that time, there was an, a new type of measles vaccine which apparently could immunize in the presence of maternal antibodies. So if you could give that vaccine earlier, I thought then we would have a much better, uh, If then we could save the children even earlier. So in collaboration with the researchers from Gambia, in particular Professor Hilton Whittle, we started to do a study whether we could use this new measles vaccine uh, already from four months of age. And uh, that was also together with the students from IMCC. And we did two studies in the uh, 84 to 88, 88 uh, where we used this vaccine and we randomized children to receive the vaccine and not receive the vaccine. So it was clearly the expectation that this would lead to lower mortality. Just to get it right, you didn't randomize children not to get measles vaccine, did you? No, no. <laughs> when you do that kind of study, you cannot. Um, it's only when you have a new vaccine, which is unknown, the effect is unknown, you can vaccinate to either get the vaccine or a placebo. In this case, when you have a policy already, you, you may be able to change the age so you can give the vaccine earlier and then the control group would receive the official policy to see whether that makes a difference, whether you got the measles vaccine at four months or whether you got the official policy uh, at nine months, which is the official age. age. Uh, so you did a randomized trial of giving the new measles vaccine, which could be given earlier yeah. at four months, or just receiving the normal measles vaccine at nine months? Yeah. 
we actually did two studies over a period of four years. And we also did a study in, in the, with our collaborators, co- collaborators in Senegal. Um, so there was a lot of enthusiasm in also in WSO and other organizations at the time that th- this vaccine was really a vaccine which could help eradicate measles. Because if you could vaccinate already at four, four or five months of age, you had a much better possibility of protecting everyone against measles. If you had to wait to nine months or 12 months, there are too many children who would get measles. You could tra- continue transmitting the, the, the infection. Um, so we were very enthusiastic, and I think I, at that time, saw my my own role and a long-term role would be to take take part in. I had seen the measles and had seen the mortality, so I really thought that it would be great if one could help eradicate measles infection. So that was my vision of my future at that time. Um, I, you know, it was clearly very influenced by the fact that I had seen all the children dying of measles in, in Bissau. When I came to Guinea-Bissau as 34 years of age at the time, I had not seen a, per- a dead person. And then suddenly in the first months there, I saw a lot of children uh, who were dying. So that was a shock in the sense that, and, and I guess that became, in a sense, became my mission that I wanted to contribute to how can you reduce child mortality. Um, and <clears throat> it, the, the travel with this with this study, where we, well, I traveled back between Guinea-Bissau and the Gambia and Senegal to take part in these these studies, and in, in the eight of the eighties, we started to have the first results, and that really was not what we had expected. Uh, it had not reduced mortality, and I remember sitting in. I was going up to Gambia to discuss, to discuss with Hilton Whittle, who had with whom we have done this study, and I was trying. I had been around interviewing all the the families of the children who had taken part in the study, and I was sort of noting the children who had died because I mean, this was still still the time of paperwork, and so I was sitting in the car. You know, one of the project drivers was taking me up there, and I was sitting in the car and writing down. Uh, the children who who who, who had died, and in, instead of actually sort of just putting a line for every child, I put an F or an M to indicate whether it was a female or a male who had died, and the paper sort of grew, and I got far more more and more children who had died, and what was stunning was that. There were three times more girls who had died in, in, than boys, and that's w- not normal in any way. This is not like in South Africa, South America, no, not sorry, in Southeast Asia, where you would have sort of differential treatment of boys and girls. There are no differential treatment of boys and girls in Africa. Uh, normally, girls have slightly lower mortality, like in the Western world, they had lower mortality than the boys. But suddenly I was sitting there with sort of three times more girls who had died. And that was, you know, that was a shock to all of us because we had sort of done these trials and the, you know, the vaccine worked against uh, measles. So one of the, the first paper we wrote was sort of you can actually vaccinate already at four months of age and protect against measles. But when we had followed them up to five, f- three or four years of age, then you had higher mortality for those who had received the new vaccine. So among those who were randomized to receive the measles vaccine at four months, yeah. there were many, many girls, many more girls that died, yeah. not boys. Three times more yeah. uh, than the boys. For for the boys, it did not really matter whether you got the new vaccine or the old vaccine. Uh, but for the girls, it was a three, threefold higher risk of dying if you had received a new vaccine at four months rather than to receive the normal measles vaccine at at nine months of age. You are listening to Vaccine Curious. So, Peter, just to summarize, you had seen that children in Guinea-Bissau were not malnourished. They died nonetheless uh, at a very high rate if they 
got measles infection. One out of four children died. The introduction of measles vaccine was associated with huge reductions in all-cause mortality that could not be explained just based on the prevention of measles infection. So you actually saw a 70%, a sevenfold reduction in the risk of dying among those who had received a measles vaccine in a campaign versus those who hadn't received the measles vaccine in the campaign. And at that time, measles vaccine was, was recommended at nine months of age, but you thought that if measles vaccine could have such great effects, it might be even more beneficial to give it earlier on. So you were eager when WHO launched a new measles vaccine that could be given already at four months of age to actually test if that would lead to further reductions in child mortality. And um, this new high titer measles vaccine, you then tested in randomized trials. So children were randomized uh, drawing a lot that determined whether they would receive the high titer measles vaccine at four months or the standard titer measles vaccine at nine months. And again, the expectation was you would see much lower mortality or even lower mortality among those children who had received the high titer measles vaccine. But you just explained how when you were doing the tallies of all the children who had died, you, it became very clear that there was something wrong. There were more children dying in the group that had received the measles vaccine at four months of age, the high titer measles vaccine at four months of age. And they were almost or very predominantly, it was females who, uh, who died. So you were sitting there with observations, both from Guinea-Bissau, but also from uh, collaborator sites uh, in Senegal, I think, uh, showing identical patterns of mortality and worryingly suggesting that this new high titer measles vaccine that WHO had already rolled out in, in Africa was associated with increased female mortality. The, the vaccine hadn't been rolled out. This happened just in 18, <coughs> 1989. And WHO, that was the year when WHO recommended this vaccine to be used in areas where there was a high risk of measles infection. And that was the same time that we found this strange observation with higher female mortality. And when I met that first statistics in, in the car, uh, I and my col collaborator, Professor Vittel, in the Gambia, we wrote to WSO and said, we are concerned. Please could they check whether any of the other studies which have used this vaccine exper experimentally had seen something similar. And initially, we did not receive uh, an answer. It took some time and wrote again. And then they wrote back and said, uh, thank you for your concern. We know that you have small numbers. Uh, what did they mean by that? That means that it had not been our initial hypothesis that it was an effect only for females. So if you took all children together, this was not really statistically significant. It was not five, less than 5%. It was less than 6%. Uh, but that was not acceptable because it was not accepted in, in that sort of c the culture of testing medical theories. It has to be below 5%. But the fact that it was totally different pattern for boys and girls did not really count in that perception. To me as an anthropologist, it was totally stunning that this was separately for, for boys and girls. That was a, the key. It wasn't key whether it was 5% or 6%. But the, we, the statistical yeah. significance yeah. test, yeah. They then wrote, we had written, and when WSO, they kind of said they, they would send it forward to another committee and we never heard anything further. Then I went to Senegal or to, not, rather not Senegal, I went to, to Howard where the, <clears throat> the guy who had done the study in Senegal, he was working at Howard at that time. So I went there to analyze the data to see whether there was anything similar in the data from Senegal. A and there was, there was higher female mortality also in, in the data from Senegal. So we wrote again to WSO and <clears throat> they did not answer. Uh, but I happened to be on another committee, so I was in G Geneva in 
I think September, October uh, 90. And then I went over to the vaccination program and said, uh, uh, <clears throat> when I came, uh, I met with a guy who was responsible for, for, measles, for measles. And when I came, he said, aren't you happy that <clears throat> they, they have just, UNICEF has just sort of recommended 30 million doses of this new vaccine? And I said, are you sure you know what you're doing? Uh, was he sarcastic or did no, no. he didn't know about your research results? He didn't connect the point. Okay. Uh, he was just sort of happy that they had got a lot of money for this new measles vaccine. And even though I have written to him several times about our observation, it didn't really link. And it took a whole afternoon in, in the head office in of, of the vaccination program And I, I managed to convince them that we we need to have some people to evaluate this. And it was kind of the first time that I had had this kind of com complaint. So they agreed to have a committee of so-called experts, even though no one had actually studied this kind of problem before. They found something who were some people who were experts in measles vaccination. And... Um, You know, this happened in the fall of 90, and then in, in January 91, we had the first committee meeting where we presented uh, our data from both Bissau and from Senegal and uh, <clears throat> sort of kind of suggested there was a problem here. But the expert, the 10 expert, uh, said that they did not understand. This could not, we had not planned the study. So it could be sort of, coincidence. When the study had not been planned, this could not be right. And I tried to say, well, no, sorry, but you don't plan to, to kill children in studies. In, so you, you could not have planned a study to, sort of to show that this vaccine killed girls. But nonetheless, they said it was not planned and they did not have a biological explanation. There was not a mechanism which was, it was, it was biologically implausible. So just to get it right, you presented data from two different countries yeah. where the introduction of high titer measles vaccine in a, in a randomized trial versus the standard measles vaccine, where the group that received the high titer measles vaccine at four months had much higher mortality and it was particularly for the females. Yeah. So what is the likelihood that this would be a chance finding? That, that you have two so extreme observations in two different settings? These things are, are, are complicated, but in clear in Bissau, it was higher mortality. In Senegal, it was only higher mortality for the girls. And the, the Senegal study had, was not really finished. So the attitude of those people was that the, the Senegal study did not count very much because it wasn't finished. Uh, the follow-up had not been finished. But you had this same differential effect that it was associated with our female mortality. That was what counted for me to say that we have a problem here. So the conclusion was that there was no problem. And <clears throat> I guess we, we had suggested that we should have a watch out for this. Instead, they said recommended to go ahead with this vaccination. So just continue rolling out the, yeah. the high titer measles vaccine yeah. in spite of the... Just when it started, yeah. when the, they had been approved in 89 and to produce the vaccine they needed, it took time. So it was only in 91 it started to be rolled out. And uh, during 91, there were then more studies <clears throat> being done. Other people who had done studies, who had, one of them had taken part in the WHO committee, which had rejected that there was a problem. He went back to Haiti to find out what had uh, what had actually happened on Haiti. And the same thing had happened to, on Haiti. There were higher female mortality, which there should normally not be. And there was also, <clears throat> the Canadians had done a study in Sudan, and they also found higher female mortality. So those things which happened, you know, those analyses which happened in, in, <clears throat> in 91, they kind of led WTO to have a new meeting in 92. So in 92, there was a meeting in, in Atlanta, in close to CDC, uh, <clears throat> to try to handle, that was a new group of experts, and they, this time, they concluded that 
it had been repeatable. They didn't really understand it, but it had been repeatable, and therefore they had to stop it. So they recommended that this vaccine should no longer be used. Um, and they get, gave no real reason for how could this happen. Uh, <clears throat> but you can say it was during this uh, meeting in Atlanta that I had to explain to all the data we had at that time from uh, to my collaborators, and those collaborators were from Gambia and Senegal, and the Americans had funded the study in Senegal, so there were also people from CDC who was taking part in this disco discussion. So in, in, in that kind of, it wasn't that, that moment that I had to explain what, what is different here. Everyone at that time sort of believed that vaccines have a specific effect against the disease that it's planned to protect against. And in terms of explaining that there's something we don't understand, I think that was the first time we kind of used the word that the vaccines must have non-specific effects. And the reason for, for saying that was that we had several observations which did not fit what people had norm, normally uh, <clears throat> assumed to be true. I mean, the first point was that measles vaccine reduced mortality much more than expected. Normal measles vaccine reduced mortality much more than expected. High titer measles vaccine, on the other hand, increased mortality, and it only increased it for girls. That, that again, did not really make sense. And I guess the third thing was also that we had seen that measles infection as such, though it can kill in the acute phase, afterwards it seems to have a beneficial effect on the survival of the kids, which kind of suggests that the disease trains the immune system. So it was a combination of those observations which really led to the idea that the vaccine has non-specific effects. Vaccine curious. What did people say in Atlanta when you presented this idea that vaccines have non-specific effects? They were re re receptive because uh, it wasn't. This was just for my collaborators. That was not for the big meeting. The me big meeting was just about the data which have come from Sudan and how easy to say that you know, this vaccine has negative effects. But for, for, yeah, for the high tide me. But uh, for my collaborators, you know, they kind of shared some of the same experience. So it made sense to, this, to them that vaccine must actually have other effects than those we normally look at. So I guess the problem is that we have only looked at what we had planned with the vaccines. We hadn't considered the possibility that the intervention we may we make may have totally other effects than those we have planned. And that has been sort of the basis for now 30 years of work on what does the non-specific effects mean for vaccines. I, I should say that a lot of people have, well, not a lot, but several people have, in connection with the de development of different vaccines, they have se seen patterns which suggested that <coughs> suggested that the vaccine had non-specific effect. Already when smallpox vaccination was introduced in 1798, there were people would start when the first smallpox vaccine were initiated, they said, it looks like this vaccine protects against other diseases. And when, <coughs> so when TB vaccine was introduced in, in the 1920s, there were also several people who <clears throat> including the inventor of the vaccine, Calmet, who wrote that this vaccine seems to protect against other things. They didn't precisely use the concept non-specific effect, but that was what they thought about. And and in the 60s, when <clears throat> the oral polio vaccine, well, the, the vaccine against polio was developed, there were Russian researchers uh, <clears throat> who used this vaccine and got the impression that this vaccine did a lot of other things, that this was, vaccine was actually better to protect against influenza than the, the, the actual annual influenza vaccination. So they also talked about this, the strange effects of the vaccines. The issue is that most of these observations has not been, has not been accepted 
by the sort of the, the mainstream in medicine. So they stand as separate observation for smallpox and for for, <coughs> for the Calmet vaccine and for polio and has really not been pursued in terms of what's the implication of that. So, Peter, you summarized your findings of nonspecific effects of vaccines in a, I think you first used the term in a paper published in 1995. You had published the beneficial, incredibly beneficial effects of the standard measles vaccine already in the 80s, but I think it was first in a BMJ paper in 1995, a hallmark paper where you raise the hypothesis and formulate the hypothesis that measles vaccine can have beneficial nonspecific effects. But when we look back 100 years from now, would we then say there was uh, incidence or the observation with smallpox vaccine, there was one with BCG vaccine in the 1920s, with all polio vaccine in, in the 1960s, and then there was Peter Arby with measles vaccine in 1995, Will that be an island also, do you think? Or have we reached a point where nonspecific effects are here to stay? I, I certainly hope so, <laughs> um, since I've used my life on it. Uh, I hope it's here to stay. And for the benefit of <clears throat> of humans, it certainly should stay. Um, <clears throat> I guess the medical profession have provided sort of humanity with a very specific approach to disease prevention because diseases are the the key co- the key point of what m- physicians do so everything is focused on specific diseases i think which comes out of the story about the non-specific effect is really maybe it's more important what the immune system does. So health is not the absence of all infections. Health is having a strong immune system. So apparently some of the vaccines can actually strengthen the immune system and provide sort of unheard of benefits in terms of child survival. So we haven't had the time to do that, but for all these live vaccines, measles, smallpox, um, <clears throat> BCG, the Calmet vaccine, and the oral polio vaccine, we have shown that they have very, very strong effect on child survival. So if we learn to understand what the immune system does and how you should interact with the immune system, you can reach very strong reductions in child mortality. On that positive note, we will end. Uh, I hope to persuade you to come back to do another podcast at another time because you have many different research agendas that we haven't even started to discuss uh, this time. But uh, for now, thank you very much, Peter Roby, Professor in Global Health and Childhood Vaccines at University of Southern Denmark. You've listened to Vaccine Curious with your host, Professor in Global Health from University of Southern Denmark, Christine Steppelben. Thanks for listening.